You know, there are a number of things in Scripture that surprise me. But one of the, the things that surprises me that we read in Scripture is, is found here in the Ten Commandments. It surprises me that of all the commandments, of all ten of these commandments, that God will reserve His, his harshest words and His most threatening judgment for this second commandment. You would think that he, he would have much harsher words to say about things like murder and adultery. I mean, if I were writing this, I think I would probably say that he ought to have the harshest words connected to the first commandment. As we talked last week, it seems as though that first commandment is really the foundation for all the others. If you miss that first one, the others are hard to follow. And yet, the first commandment, all we get is one brief sentence. It's the second commandment that we hear God's threatening, harsh words of judgment for those who disobey. Hear once again what he says in Deuteronomy 5, beginning at verse 8. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I suspect that we feel a little bit uncomfortable to hear God say that he is jealous. You know, we think of jealousy as as a sign of pettiness, self-centeredness. Jealousy rises up within us because someone else gets a better grade. Jealousy eats away at us because someone has a, a higher athletic accomplishment. We feel jealousy because someone else has a nicer home or a better car. And when we think about jealousy, it, it always relates to someone else having something that we don't. And no wonder that assertion of God saying, I'm a jealous God, bothers us. But God's jealousy is not the same as ours. When God says he is jealous, we might also say that he is zealous, another word you could put there. And his jealousy is not pettiness or self-centeredness. It's not intolerance, but it is exclusiveness. If you think about, think of this in terms of marriage. If, if, if a husband had a relationship with another woman like he ought to have with his wife, or if a wife had another relationship with another man that she ought to have only with her husband, and, and the wife and husband weren't jealous, we would say something's not right with that relationship. They ought to be jealous. I mean, marriage is, a, is about exclu an exclusive relationship between these two people, between this man and this woman. And it, it's the love that they have for each other that brings about the feeling of jealousy and betrayal when someone else is put into that position. 
And so God isn't petty. He's just serious about the exclusiveness of our relationship with him. He says, I want you to be my people, and I want to be your God, your only God, and I won't have any other rivals. This is about God being first and only. And it's not some kind of arbitrary hostility that God feels. It's the normal emotion that you feel when you're in a loving relationship and it's threatened. But what surprises me is that for some reason, the fashioning and worshiping of images causes God to feel betrayed. I think it's difficult for us to understand exactly the practicality of this command. I mean, yeah, we look back and we read the Old Testament and we say, okay, those people worshiped little statues that they made out of wood or precious metal or stone, and they set them up on something and they bowed down and worshiped it. And we understand that's a bad thing to do, but we don't do that. You know, we understand the, the, the sort of the, uh, the goading that the prophets give to the people. When Isaiah says to them, you people are amazing. Guy goes out in the woods, finds a nice tree, cuts it down, cuts it in half, and one half of it, he, he shapes it into a god, into an image, sets it up and worships it, and with the other half of the same tree, he chops it up into little pieces and cooks his meal over it. That's the god you worship? Jeremiah says to the, you know, kind of makes fun of the people as they're trying to get out of the city because they're having a hard time because they're carrying their gods on their backs. He says, what are you people thinking? You're worshiping gods that you have to carry when all the while you could be worshiping the God who wants to carry you? And we understand that, and we go, yeah, those people are so stupid. And we have a tendency to think this really isn't about us. But it is about us. Because you and I wrestle with human-made images just like they do. This word, idol, or in the King James, graven image, it means something that, that someone makes or carves out of piece of wood or stone or, or metal. And it is, it is made to be, an, it's intended to represent God. And God's admonition to us here in the first commandment is worship the right God. In the second commandment, God is saying, worship the right God in the right way. The story of the golden calf in Exodus 32, the people are waiting on Moses and they're impatient and so they come to Aaron and say, look, make a God for us. So Aaron says, okay, bring me all of your gold and they bring him all their gold jewelry and he melts it down and they fashion it into a calf and they set this calf up and the people say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And most scholars agree that they're not saying, this is some foreign God. This is an Egyptian God or Canaanite God that brought us out of Egypt. They're saying this is a representation of Yahweh who brought us out of Egypt. And God isn't real happy with them. Because God knows 
the, any representation of him is going to be inadequate and unable to truly represent him. You know, it's difficult for us maybe to understand how this whole concept of idols comes into, into play, but I don't think it's really that complicated. You know, we're more in tune to the physical world than we are to the spiritual. And we find it difficult to get our minds around things that we cannot appropriate with our senses. If we can't feel it or touch it or see it or hear it, we have a hard time believing it. We forget about the invisible. We're, we're leery of the invisible. And so we find ways to make the, the invisible visible. And though these images can be helpful to us, they often become images that fully, we think, fully represent God. And it confuses us. What are some of the images that we are tempted to make in order to represent God? Well, there are some things that are literally physical images. You know, some people point to the icons in the Orthodox Church. Some people point to some of the statues in the Roman Catholic Church. Some people will say that that would point to the pictures of Jesus that we hang on the walls of our homes, our churches. Because when we those pictures give us the impression that, that that's what God is like. And they're limited and they're inadequate. Now, I'm not going to say to you, you need to go home and burn all, burn all the pictures you have in your home of Jesus. Now, I have a picture hanging on my wall. We have them here. They help us. Maybe what we need to do, though, is to, is to begin looking and putting up pictures in the country. Our pictures of Jesus tend to look like an American white, male, ruddy, good-looking. And some people will look at that and be alienated from God because they're not like that. And we have a tendency to think that's what God's about. That's who he is. God is like me. And that picture is always going to be limiting and misrepresenting of God. I read about a little boy who was lying on the floor in the family room one, one day, and he was coloring with his crayons, and his mom said, what are you doing? He said, I'm drawing a picture of God. She said, what? no one knows what God looks like. He said, when I get done with this picture, they will. <laughs> and there's something in us that, that causes us to think that we, we can create those images of God. But, you know, the pictures of God that we may have are really not as much of a problem, these, these concrete images, as the, as the things that we do in our worship of God. You know, the images are a problem because they subtly tell us that we can control God. We can put God into a box. We can limit God. You know, we do this when we say that God can only reveal himself through a particular style of worship, whether it's high church or low church. That God can only, we can only know God through a particular kind of music, traditional hymns or contemporary songs, or even by a particular place in which we gather for worship, 
stately cathedral or renovated theater. I, I was reading recently about a, a movement in America to people to go back to the house churches. And one of the people in the article was saying that I, by being a part of a house church, I finally discovered what the church is about. And it caused me immediately to think of, of our brothers and sisters in places like China who are forced to worship in their homes for their own safety. And how some of them will, will take great risks to gather together with other Christians in churches because they need that. But somehow we begin to think that we can, we can put God into a box and we limit him. And when we do, we're in violation of this second commandment. And God says, I will not be controlled. I was thinking recently about the, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And, and I'd never really given it, given it a, a great deal of thought. And, and then one day I remember realizing what it must have been like in the temple when they were bringing in animals by the hundreds and sacrificing them every day. I mean, I don't suspect that was the, uh, the sweetest smelling place you could go to. I mean, it was like a slaughterhouse in there. And, and I know what that, a little bit of what that's like because when I was in high school, I worked for two years in a meatpacking plant. And it wasn't a slaughterhouse, but it was the next step. And uh, there was a lot of blood and a lot of smells. And it, the odor, honestly, could be offensive. I, I remember one friend of mine who was, was a football player Big, you know, six foot, six one, one ninety or so, and you know, lifted weights. Was, you know, as a line or a defensive back, and he loved to, you know, reputation of hitting receivers going across the middle of the field. And he was a tough guy, and everybody knew it. He got a job there, and he quit after the first day. He said, "I could, I can't eat anymore. I could not eat after being in that place." And what struck me is that, knowing all of that, God says that this is a sweet aroma to me. I'm thinking, what? The place stinks. How could it be a sweet aroma? And I know that there are theological things about God saying that, but I wonder if there isn't something very practical too. That we wouldn't have designed it that way. But God says, that's my point. What you may think is, doesn't smell very good, I say I love. Because it's not about what you think is right, it's about what I think is right. And you are not going to limit me or control me. We do this with our theologies. You know, we believe that if we, we can get an understanding of God just right, we can get God in a box, we've got him figured out and, and we're done. And any honest theologian will tell you that as, as, as much time as they spend on understanding the theological perspective they may follow, there's so much we don't understand. God is so far beyond us. But isn't that the kind of God that we want to worship? I mean, don't we want to worship a God who's beyond us? 
You see, the problem with this is that it's not just about limiting God. It's not just about, about controlling God. It's also about manipulating God. Because if we can control God, then maybe we can manipulate God into doing what we want Him to do. I mean, that's at the heart of, of, the, of the sacrificial system, the, the idolatry that, that's in Israel and surrounds them. People believing that if they go through the right rituals, if they bow down to the right images, the gods will give them what they want. Back when Cindy and I and the boys visited the Philippines, we went with my parents to, it's called the Church of the Black Nazarene, and it has a, a, a life-size mahogany carving of Jesus hanging on the cross. and it, it, It's on the wall of, of this beautiful church, and about it, the, the bottom of it is probably about six feet tall off the ground. And people will, will pass by and say their prayers and, and rub the feet of this statue. During Holy Week and on Good Friday, people will line up for blocks to come in to say their prayers while they rub those feet. Those feet have been rubbed so many times that the toes are completely gone. And we look at that and, and we say, it's so sad that people think that they can manipulate God like that and, and try to convince God to, to do for them what they want. And then we look inside of our own lives. Lord, if I, if I pray a little more, will you help me get this thing figured out? Lord, if I, if I read my Bible more, will you, will you fix this situation with my child or or with my parents, or my siblings, or my friends? Lord, if I go to church every week, if I give more to the church, will you fix this relationship that's a mess? And all the while, we are attempting to manipulate God into our image, worshiping the right God, but in the wrong way. I think the reason we struggle with this is because when we release ourselves to the, to the mystery of God, we realize what a scary thing that is. Because God is not controllable. And we like to control things. God is limitless. And we like things to be put into boxes. God is mysterious. And we like to figure out everything we can. But that's the point. Worshiping the right God in the right way is refusing to create God in our image and to limit Him to our images, but to release Him to be God in our lives that He wants to be. You see, this isn't just about what not to do. There is also a call to what we need to do. And that is to surrender. To trust that the God who is so far beyond us is for us. And to believe that our little images that we want, that we want to hold God in are going to kill us, not free us. From the truth, God is saying to us 
instead of trying to limit me to your little images, let go of yourself and let me recreate you in my holy image. That's one of the, one of the reasons for the incarnation. And Paul tells us that, that Jesus is, is the image of the invisible God. And when we go back to, to creation on that sixth day, God says, let us make human beings in our own image. And so God made them, male and female, in his own image. And we corrupted that image by our sin. And our fallenness has marred that image. But God's plan for us is to restore us to that image. The image of holiness and of love and of grace. I suspect that few, if any of us, are going to be tempted to to set up little idols in our homes and to carve them and worship them. But every one of us is susceptible to trying to create God in our own image, limiting God, controlling God, manipulating God, instead of surrendering to God. Back in the early 80s, there was a, a movie that came out. It's called Mr. Mom. Some of you may have seen it. It starred Michael Keaton and Terry Garr as, as uh, Jack and Carolyn Butler. They were a typical couple with a couple of children, and he was an engineer in an, in an uh, auto manufacturing firm in Detroit. And it was during a recession, and one day he, was, he lost his job. He spent a lot of time trying to find another job, and one was unable to. And so finally they came to the conclusion that the only solution to their financial situation was for Carolyn to go out and get a job, and he would stay home and take care of the home and the kids, and so he became Mr. Mom. And there are many humorous antics that take place as this man who rarely spent or did anything at home now is there all the time trying to take care of things. As he begins to get the hang of it and begins to understand what this is all about, there is a scene where he goes to his little boy, his six-year-old boy, Kenny's room one day. Kenny has a, a security blanket that he calls his whoopee. This whoopee is old and it's tattered. It's falling apart. And Jack sits down in his room, sits on his bed and says, Kenny, we've got to have a man-to-man talk about your whoopee. He said, it's in bad shape, bud. He said, and I know you little guys love your whoobies. You, you think they're great, and they are. They're terrific. But you know, eventually your whoobie's not going to be enough. Someday you're, you're going to be out, and you're going to be looking to, to score an electric blanket or a quilt. and be strung out on bedspreads. This is serious, Kenny. He said, come on, give me your whoopee. And after a lot of thought, slowly, reluctantly, Kenny hands his whoopee to his father. And his father says to him, son, you've got guts.
You know, we all have spiritual whoopies, security blankets, idols. And giving up those idols, those security blankets, those things to which we cling is hard because they make us feel comfortable and secure and settled. And when we think about about the mysterious, unlimited, uncontrollable God, we're often filled with fear about what it would mean to simply surrender to Him, to give up all of that stuff that we've created and let God be God and take over our lives. But until we give them up, we're on the road to bondage, not freedom. We're on the road to death, not life. But if we're willing to surrender, we will eventually and finally know the joy and the blessing that the almighty, uncontrollable, limitless God has for us. So instead of living, attempting to to make God into our images, God calls us to surrender ourselves so that he can recreate us into his image. Father, we pray that you will give us the courage to let go. To let go of these security blankets, to let go of these images we've created that are so important to us and and to simply release them to you. And to let you lead us and take us to places we could have never dreamed. Father, this morning, set us free. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.